True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano, and on today's episode, we cover the I-95 killer, Gary Ray Bowles. Hey, look, another serial killer with three names. Remember that? If you're a friend of the podcast, you'll remember that I have a theory that if you have three names, you will become a serial killer. No, that's not true. But it's very common, and I don't know why. There's no connection whatsoever. It's just interesting to think about. So before we get into Bo Gary, before we get into Gary Ray Bowles, I want to share an email with you that comes from Mia F. In response to my query on the question of why Stephen Port would uh, make his victims be unconscious before he takes advantage of them. Okay, so let me start back. If you heard the previous episode on Stephen Port, you will know that I was wondering in the episode why somebody would um, need somebody to be unconscious during a violation, like a rape. Um, what the psychology was behind that. Mia F. wrote in, she says, Good morning, Mr. Moreno. To answer your question, re why someone like Stephen Port would rape someone while they're unconscious, you're correct. Yay me! Um, she says, it's about more than control. It's about not being rejected, which I didn't think about that, the rejection part of it, though, but I knew it was more than control because you're not dominating somebody who is unconscious. I mean, they're not fighting back. So she says, if a victim is unconscious, they're unable to reject their attacker. So that's where that whole thing comes from. So Mia, thank you so much for helping me understand and getting a little glimpse into the crazed mind of somebody like Stephen Port. If you haven't heard the episode of Stephen Port, I invite you to go back and do that because... Why would you miss an episode of True Gay Crime? That doesn't make any sense. And a huge shout out to my two newest patrons from my Patreon page, McLovin and Karamia F. Welcome, guys. Hey, listen, if you want to join the likes of these two newest patrons, head on over. The link is in the description in the show notes of this podcast. Patrons of the podcast get benefits like uh, early access to episodes, bonus content, behind-the-scenes content. There's a lot there. So go to the Patreon link, check it out, and if you're interested, support me. And also, don't forget, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, to rate and review True Gay Crime. It helps me out tremendously. It doesn't cost you a cent, so it's a win-win for everyone. Okay, now... Back to the story. We're talking here about the I-95 killer Gary Ray Bowles. This happened in the year 1994. And as always, I'm going to set the scene. We need to go back to the 90s now. In 1994, just to help set the scene, did you know that computers were around, but, 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 but the World Wide Web is born that year? And it's create. Okay, listen to this. The creator's name is Tim Berners Lee. Did you guys know that? Did you know the name of the guy who invented www? I mean, I feel like this is somebody that everybody should know the name of this guy. This is one of the most important things. It affects every single aspect of our lives. I have never heard of Tim Berners Lee. Oh my God, he's got three names. Maybe he's a serial killer. 
But serious, no, if he was, then we would know his name. So wait a minute, we know serial killer's name, and then we don't know the name of the guy who invented the World Wide Web? Am I alone in this? Did anybody out there know Tim Berners-Lee's name before I said it here? I didn't think so. Um, So the internet was so new that you had to pay every minute you were online through like paid dial-up services like AOL. It was expensive to use. And if you wanted to back up anything on the internet or on your computer, you had to use a floppy disk, which was, they weren't really floppy. I don't know why they were called floppy disks. They're like these squarish, hard disks. They should have been called hard disks. Why are they called floppy disks? Um, Email was super expensive. So most people were still using fax machines in 1994. And DVDs are not even invented until 1995. So in 1994, we're still using VHS to watch and record movies and TV and things like that. Right? I feel like DVDs have been around a lot longer than that. But, you know, I guess Google can't be wrong. Um, Renting movies, of course, meant going to a blockbuster video which I think we discussed in an earlier podcast, which was such an event, which is really a fun memory that I have with my family, going to Blockbuster Video and choosing movies. Like, that was a fun thing to do when you were a kid. Um, And then also, Sony PlayStation is invented and changes the gaming landscape forever. (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, we had uh, Nintendo. Um, We had Nintendo... And then, but that was before this. So Nintendo existed. I guess PlayStation just brought it to the next level. Did you know that Justin Bieber was born in 1994? Oh, for God's sake. I mean, this guy, will he ever grow up? I feel like he's just not aging. Like he's always just the same age. I keep getting older, but Justin Bieber is the same. Like he just, like it's a Dorian Gray situation. I don't know. Um, like he gets, sometimes he has a mustache. Sometimes he gets another tattoo, but... Like, why are you still in your 20s? I feel like you should be 40 by now. Um, Probably because we hear too much about him. Forrest Gump comes out in theaters, and so does The Lion King. The Lion King. I mean, that was huge. And then spurred the Broadway show that just will never go away. Um, So that's 1994. 1994. Patrick Moreno is... 17 years old in 1994. Bless his little heart. His little gay, horror-obsessed heart. All right. So my sources for this story are Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Newsweek.com, Jacksonville.com, and TheWashingtonPost.com, which was a good one. All right. So let's get into it. Let's waste no more time. Here it is. The horrifying, disgusting trail, blazing a trail down the East Coast, the serial killer, the I-95 killer, the Interstate 95 highway killer, Gary Ray Bowles. Picture it. Florida, 1994. Timothy Whitfield is shown into the interrogation room by police. The room is quiet except the shuffling of their feet and the dragging of chairs being pulled out from under the table. For a minute, Whitfield didn't know if he should speak first or wait for the police. After all, he knew something they did not. He knew who he really was. He knew what he had really done. But do they? Could they put the pieces together themselves, or would he have to spell it out for them? 
the police had arrested Whitfield, a simple day laborer, on the suspicion of killing his roommate, Walter J. Hinton. Hinton was found, his head bashed in with a cinder block and choked to death with toilet paper in, the mo- in his mobile home in Jacksonville Beach, Florida. As the interrogation began, Whitfield knew he'd have to point out the obvious. He was tired. Tired of running, tired of killing. In a pause in the conversation, he leaned in and said, Do you really want to know who I am? And as the man, that, and as the man they thought was Whitfield explained that he was actually Gary Ray Bowles, wanted by the FBI, one of America's most wanted criminals, evading authorities in three states, on the run for months, and terrorizing gay communities up and down the East Coast. He let the new information sink in for the police, then paused, asked for a cigarette, and confessed to the brutal murders of six men. I just wanted to kill as many people as I could before they caught me, he said. But it's time. I want the killing to stop. I'm either getting six life sentences or the electric chair. Why'd Bowles decide to kill so brutally his victims? What set him off? How'd he escape the authorities for so long? Let's see if we can figure it out together. Gary Ray Bowles is born on January 25th, 1962 in Clifton Forge, Virginia. He's the second son of William Franklin Bowles and Francis Carroll Price Bowles. Wow, they have a lot of names. Serial killer family. I mean, I have middle names too. I just don't go by them, you know. Okay. Um, and also, his wife's name is um, Francis Carroll Price Bowles. Like, don't they sound kind of wealthy and posh? I mean, they're not. They're like dirt poor, but... It reminds me of, like, Camilla Camilla Parker Bowles. I wonder if they're related. I don't think so. Gary's dad dies before he's born from black lung disease from working in the coal mines, so he never knows his biological dad. His mom remarries several times, and when Bowles is seven, his stepdad starts to abuse him and his brother by hitting them with his fists or belts. When Mama Frances tries to intervene, she gets beat, too. She finds the strength to leave, eventually, and divorce this asshole and quickly remarries another guy, another asshole, named Chet. Chet drinks too much and would beat the kids and Francis. And at, I mean, that's bad. Is that bad luck? Or is that, I mean, what is it in your vibration that you are attracting people that are beating you? I'm not blaming her for getting beat, but I'm just saying, what is going on? Like, one relationship okay that's like fucked up and so sad but and then two back to back so what's going on there okay at 10 bulls start sniffing glue paint markers anything to get high to escape his terrible life and he drops out of school in grade eight that's really really young the beating at home continues for the next uh while until bulls is 13 and by this point he and his brother have had enough so they gang up on their stepfather chet and they beat the shit out of him including bashing his head with a rock despite the violence francis stays with chet so bowles is like fuck you he leaves at 13 years old to live on the streets can you imagine i i'm in my 40s and i can't imagine not having a roof over my head imagine or even having the tools to really take care of myself on the street 13 on the road, Bowles becomes a man. He grows to 5 feet 9 inches tall, weighs 150 pounds. He gets three tattoos, a heart and a ribbon on his left arm, and a cross and a star on his left wrist. He gets a few noticeable scars from scrapes he gets into, like on the inside of his left hand, um, the left inside of his nose, his right wrist, his left side of chest. So basically, he has a lot of 
uh, distinguishing marks, which is going to be important for later. He works a lot of odd jobs, um, like as a carpenter in construction work and agricultural work. He smokes cigarettes, usually Marlboros or Cools. He uses marijuana on a regular basis, and he's admitted in previous probation reports as having an alcohol problem as well. Bowles hitchhikes to get from town to town as he's homeless and doesn't have any cash, and it's on the road that he meets someone who teaches him about sex work. He discovers that he can get money from gay men for doing hardly anything at all. So he drifts around the country, turning tricks for 10 or 20 bucks, letting guys suck him off, but he never has enough to pay rent or have a steady home address, so he basically remains homeless. In fact, Bulls never considers himself gay, just gay for pay, or, as he calls himself, a hustler. So we're going to talk about this whole spectrum thing, internalized homophobia, hates himself, bisexual thing later on. So we will discuss that later, but let's continue with the story. Bowles was interested in women, and though he moves in with a few of them, they were short-lived moments and sometimes violent, as is the case in his early 20s when his then-girlfriend named Wesley in Hillsborough County, Florida. In June 1982, he brutally attacks her, sexually assaults, and beats her up. She ends up with the hand-shaped bruises on her neck, which is obviously he was choking her, a severe bite mark on one of her breasts, lacerations in the vagina and rectum, and her face was so beat up that her eyes are swollen shut. The FBI investigators find blood splatters all over the bedroom, reaching five feet above the bed. I mean, what the fuck? Blood splatters? That's brutal. He gets six he gets a six-year sentence, but he only serves a fraction of that, and of course he gets out. On the streets, he's at it again. In 1991, he rushes a woman on the street, pushes her down, and steals her purse. He's caught, of course, and gets four more years in prison, but he doesn't spend the whole four years there. Like, at what point do they say, hey, this guy is trouble, or do, like, do they want him in and out of prison, or isn't it just easier to keep somebody like that in prison? Obviously, they're going to keep repeating. I mean, this guy, I feel like this guy is not repairable. I know hindsight is twenty twenty. I have the benefit of knowing the full story. So, I mean, this is not somebody that's going to be like, well, I learned my lesson. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to off to win a Nobel Prize in medicine. Like, I, I just don't feel somebody like this is going to contribute to society. But again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Okay, so, um, but I'm right, of course, because when he gets out a uh, second time, He doesn't go to med school or become an environmentalist uh, saving sea turtles or help building schools in Africa. No, he goes on to single-handedly terrorize the gay community. But before that, he gets another girlfriend straight out of prison. Like, what a catch. Wow, lucky her. Uh, She's a bit older than him and she falls pregnant quickly. Things are chugging along until she finds out that he's doing sex work. So he never leaves the sex work his whole life. No matter what he's doing, he just com- continues pulling tricks, which is kind of odd because, like, if you really wanted to get your life together, um, I mean, he has girlfriends, he moves in with them, like, you have a chance to get a job, and there's nothing wrong with sex work, I'm just, like, or at least be honest with your girlfriend and be like, hey, I'm a sex worker, like, it's only a matter of time be- before your girlfriend finds out you're a sex worker. Hey, straight guys out there, if you're pulling tricks on the side and you're living with a girl, she's going to find out. So just tell her or stop or leave. 
Obviously, when she finds out that he's doing sex work, she's really upset because she had no idea. They have a huge fight. Then she goes and aborts the baby without telling him because she's like, I'm not carrying your fucking baby to term because we're not together and this isn't happening. So now Bowles is left blaming his clients, basically gay men, for his whole life imploding, including the abortion. And he decides that all gay men need to die or at least the ones that he can get alone to kill. He's blaming gay men for his shitty life. In the spring of 1994, Bowles meets 59-year-old John Hardy Roberts at a gay bar. Hustling, by this point, is second nature to Bowles, and uh, Roberts does not stand a chance against his charming ways. So an arrangement is made between the two men where Bowles would stay with Roberts temporarily and rent-free in exchange for sexual favors. But the thing, of course quickly goes sour, and a few weeks into the stay, the two men were arguing loudly. Roberts is sick and tired of hearing about Bowles' ex-girlfriend, who he talks about endlessly. Roberts had had enough, and he gives Bowles an ultimatum. He basically says, make up your mind, he says, it's me or her. Bowles doesn't answer, and Roberts demands that he leave his place for good. With that, Bowles leaves the room to get his thoughts together. He's maddened by the ultimatum. He's thrown into a rage. He grabs a glass lamp off a table, he re-enters the room, and he starts bashing it on Robert's head. Stunned, Roberts falls backwards into a coffee table and onto the ground. Bowles takes the opportunity to lunge at the 59-year-old and tightens his hands around his neck. Robert's face is panicked as he gasps for air, but the, but the hold is too tight and Bowles is too strong. To quicken the process, Bowles grabs a rag and shoves it down Robert's throat, sealing the deal, and Roberts loses consciousness and dies. Realizing that Roberts is now dead, Bowles fishes his wallet out of his back pocket containing cash and credit cards, grabs the car keys to the 92 Saturn that's sitting in the driveway, and bolts from the home. When investigators arrive on the scene, it's obvious there's been a violent struggle happening. Blood is splattered everywhere, the coffee table is shattered, and the victim has bruises around his neck and his head are covered in blood. As they inspect the scene, they find copious amounts of evidence to link Gary Bowles to the scene. His fingerprints are all over the place, and a look at the phone records shows that he made calls to his family from Robert's phone. Under the body of the victim, investigators found a letter from the probation office addressed to Bowles, a letter that must have been sitting on the coffee table when Roberts fell, a letter that must have been sitting on the coffee table when Roberts fell on top of it, and a letter that Bowles obviously forgot was there, and a letter that makes him the prime suspect of the murder. So right off the bat, I mean, police and investigators have Gary Ray Bowles in their sightline. I mean, this is not somebody who was going undetected. They knew who he was. They just didn't know where he was. So Bulls in the 92 Saturn, he drives up north, trying to use Robert's credit cards, which were blocked by investigators. And although they didn't find him, they do find the car abandoned in Georgia. They follow his trail all the way up to Nashville. Then they lose the scent. Little did they know that Bulls is now 700 miles away in Montgomery County, Maryland. In April of 1994, Bowles hustling his way from bar to bar. In one bar, he meets 38-year-old Albert Morris. Bowles charms the man and convinces him to let him stay with him rent-free in exchange for sexual favors again. This is his M.O. The men live together for about two weeks, and as we've seen, a few weeks is all Bowles has it in him to pimp himself out to any one guy, so it's no surprise that the night before the murder, 
Bowles is seen arguing with Morris at a gay bar so loudly that they're thrown out of the bar. That's the last time Morris is seen alive in public. When investigators arrive at his home, they find the 38-year-old dead. He's been beaten about the head, shot in the chest, and strangled to death. His credit cards and vehicle gone. Again, they find enough evidence at the scene to charge Bowles with murder, but he's nowhere to be found, obviously, because he's traveled over 600 miles down the I-95 to Savannah, Georgia. In May of 1994 in Savannah, Bowles heads out to a gay bar called Faces. Ironically, this bar is like located right beside the Savannah, Savannah, Georgia FBI office, which is weird. At the bar, he meets 72-year-old Milton Bradley. And this guy, there's no relation to the American business magnet. You know, the board games, Milton Bradley, this is not him. Bradley is a very well-known citizen about town, however. He's recognized as a World War II veteran. He's a quiet guy, a gentleman, very generous. During the war, he unfortunately uh, received a terrible head injury that resulted in him getting a lobotomy. A lobotomy. They still did that during that time. So I looked up exactly what a lobotomy, because I have an idea of what it is, and I'm picturing like Frankenstein on like a, a slab with his brain hanging out. So actually what it is, it's when you cut the prefrontal cortex. So it's like the front of the brain and you're like severing some of the, the, the nerves and things in there. So a little bit about lobotomy because I found this interesting. In 1949, Igas Manez won the Nobel Prize for inventing the lobotomy. Uh, but in the 50s, without much success, it fell out of favor with the invention of psychiatric drugs. And now, of course, it's illegal. So... For Morris, he suffered from slight mental impairment due to his lobotomy, due to the procedure of the lobotomy, and made him a very easy target for Bowles. So Bowles offers to drive Bradley home from the bar, but instead of taking him home, he takes him to a golf course, and then he takes him behind the golf cart shed, he beats him about the head, and he strangles the 72-year-old to death, shoving material down his throat to seal the deal. During the investigation, police find a palm print that was later matched with Bowles, who had been identified from faces leaving with Bradley, leaving little doubt that Gary had been involved in the killing again. So he's not really trying to cover his tracks, he's just going around murdering gay men. Bowles is now charged with three murders, and he's on the run from the police and FBI in three states. In July in 1994, America's Most Wanted films a segment about the crimes Bowles was believed to have committed. After the show airs, they get so many calls from viewers claiming to know his whereabouts, but he continues to elude the FBI and state authorities. At the time the show aired, he was sharing a house with a few people who naturally recognized the face staring back at them from the TV as their roommate. So they called the police. Can you imagine if you were all sitting on the couch watching America's Most Wanted and then your roommate's face pops up on the screen? I mean, that's not what happened. I'm just saying like that would be really uncomfortable. Um... But they do recognize his face from TV. I'm assuming he wasn't in the room. But uh, they call the police and the police pick up Bowles. Oh, get this. Get. You're not going to believe this. I could. You can't even make this up. This is. This is. When reality is stranger than fiction. Ready? So the police actually come to the house. They pick up Bowles. But because he has a tan and a mustache, they let him go without even checking any of the identifying marks. Like, he, he says, remember I said that he has three tattoos and he's got all these scars and things? Well, the FBI knows about that because he's been in and out of prison. So they have records of, like, identifying marks of this person. 
But they go to the house. They find a man with a tan and a mustache. And they're like, are you Gary Bowles? And he's like, no, that's not me. And they're like, oh, okay. And they don't even check for the tattoos and scars and things. Like, I don't. Oh, my God. The ineptitude is incredible. At this point, obviously, Bowles knows that the FBI are after him. He sees his face on TV as well. He sees it in newspapers and in gay bars all over the East Coast, warning gay men to stay away from him. So because of all the media attention, Bowles is like, oh, wait, I should change my identity or at least change my name because obviously his looks are already throwing the police off. So all you have to do is grow a mustache and nobody's going to be able to recognize you clearly. I don't know. But he decides, hey, I also need to change my name because if I'm ever going to get a job or a driver's license or whatever like this, I need a different name. So luckily for him, at one of his victim's homes, he found all the documents that he needed to change his name and pretend to be somebody else, namely Timothy Whitfield. So he has all the documents for a Timothy Whitfield. He goes to the DMV. He gets a new driver's license in Whitfield's name. He rents an apartment and he lives as an open open life as a day laborer in Jacksonville, Florida. So he's just walking around as Timothy Whitfield. At one point, though, his landlord thinks that he's Bowles. He's like, well, wait a minute. You kind of look like this guy that the FBI and the police are after. And he actually calls the police. The police come to the address, but he convinces the police that he's actually Timothy Whitfield. Okay, so the first time the police came to this guy saying, hey, are you Bowles? He's like, no, man, look, I have a tan and a mustache. I'm not that guy. What are you, nuts? That's not me. And they're like, oh, okay, deep to do. And they leave. This time, when they come up to him, they're like, wait a minute, are you Bowles? And he's like, nah, man. And he shows them his ID, which says Timothy Whitfield, because now he's living as Timothy Whitfield. And they're like, oh, oh, my goodness. He does actually convince them that he's someone else. But get this twist. <laughs> this is too much. So, so the police think he's Timothy Whitfield, but guess what? Timothy Whitfield had outstanding traffic violations, so much so that he goes to jail. He goes to jail a few times for petty offenses as Timothy Whitfield. Oh my God. So the guy goes to jail as Gary Ray Bowles, and then he changes identities, and the identity he changes to has offenses, and he goes back to prison. And the police this whole time have no idea. I mean, he's basically laughing at the police like now. Like, if they have not figured it out by this point, I mean, according to him, they just never will. Weren't they doing fingerprints? Like, he's been in prison before, so they would have his fingerprints on file. So why are they not taking Timothy Whitfield's fingerprints? Or I guess they did, but then they didn't think to match it with Bowles because they're like, well, you're not Bowles, you're Timothy Whitfield. In May 1994, so he's not in prison anymore, so now he's out, okay. In May 1994, in Nassau County, Florida, Bowles slash Whitfield meets 39-year-old David Jarman at a gay bar. He charms Jarman like the other men, and Jarman agrees that Bowles can stay with him for a while. Like, you had a chance to start over as Whitfield. Like, you had a job. You're just, yeah, you're just fucked. You're just not on a good trajectory. Like, you can't... It's like you can't make it as Gary Ray Bowles, and also you can't make it as Timothy Whitfield. And also, okay, so you go to jail, you lose your apartment, you're Timothy Whitfield now. Can you, like, turn over a leaf? But he doesn't. He goes back to the gay bars to pick up men, to take advantage of them, 
and steal their money and kill them. So that's who you are in your core, I guess. It doesn't matter what kind of like second chance life is giving you. Actually, it's getting worse because after only one week of living together, the men are arguing in the basement. Bowles snaps. He beats Jarman to the ground, shoves a rag in his mouth, strangles him to death, and shoots him in the head with his own gun. Then he grabs his wallet and his car keys and he bolts from the home. A maintenance man discovers the body and calls the police. Their investigation reveals that Jarman has been seen with a man matching Bull's description. That same day, Bowles attempts to use one of the credit cards at a local store, but failed to provide suitable identification. And three days later, police find the victim's automobile in Jacksonville, Florida. So Bowles is actually charged with this murder as well, but they still can't find him until the trail leads them to Atlanta, Georgia. So by now, Bowles is put on the FBI's list of the country's 10 most wanted fugitives. Imagine being in the top 10. Now we're in Atlanta. It's May. It's 1994. Bulls meets 47-year-old Averson Carter Jr. Bulls befriends the unsuspecting man who is later found by police in his home. All the trademark signs of a Bulls murder are there. A severe beating, a rag down the throat, and the cause of death as asphyxiation. Um, forensic evidence proves beyond a doubt that Bulls committed the crime, making this his fifth murder. Now we find ourselves on Friday, November 18th, 1994. This is six months after his last murder. Belinda is celebrating her birthday. She's surrounded by loved ones, including her husband, William. But one very important person is missing, her brother, Walter Hinton. It's unlike him to miss such an important occasion because the pair are super close. The next day, Belinda sends her husband to check on her brother. After all, he didn't show up to her birthday, there was no phone call, and now he's not answering his phone. As William walks up to the mobile home on Coral Drive in Duval County, Florida, he notices the lights are on. So he knocks a few times, but there's no answer. So he leaves, assuming that Hinton is not home. Two more days of no phone calls from her brother and him missing work has Belinda freaking out. She and her husband make their way back to the mobile home and they knock and they knock. Nothing. But this time, they aren't leaving without investigating more. So William goes around the back. He shatters a window to be able to break in. And the first thing he notices is a terrible smell coming from the inside of the mobile home. He peers inside and sees tables knocked over, papers on the ground, the obvious signs of a struggle. He hoists himself inside and starts looking around. When he gets to the bathroom, he notices a large mound on the ground covered in towels. He pokes it. It's hard. He slowly peels back a towel and he sees the dead and beaten body of Walter Hinton. He calls out for Belinda to tell the neighbors to call the police. On the scene, investigators find the place a mess. A discarded wallet on the bed, personal papers on the floor, empty beer cans and small liquor bottles, and a 40-pound stone covered in blood. And a receipt with the name Timothy Whitfield. Gone was the victim's watch and his car. A medical examination determines that Hinton's head had actually been crushed with the stone. He had broken ribs and abrasions on his left arm and leg, and it was obvious that there was a life and death struggle that happened here. The facial fracture, though severe, was not the cause of his death, but rather asphyxiation from strangulation, with toilet paper and a rag lodged in his throat. 
By now, police had confused Bowles with his alias Whitfield. So there's a lot of confusion going on at this point. And when they asked the neighbors and eyewitnesses for information and a sketch, like a visual sketch of the person, that the person that they described to the police was the one that they thought was called Whitfield, their leading suspect. So it actually only takes the police two days to track down Bowles slash Whitfield. And on October 22nd, 1994, they arrest him at the labor pool at Jackson at Jacksonville Beach. They take him into the station, and, well, that's where our podcast began. Bowles slash Whitfield, tired of pretending and running from the law, comes clean about who he is and his aliases. The police realize that they have their man in custody. Yay! Well, yeah, but it's only after he told you, so... This man, who had terrorized the gay communities from Maryland down to Florida, tracing a bloody path down the I-95 freeway. In his confession, he tells police he met Hinton at Jacksonville Beach, he charmed the man, and the two spend a few days getting better acquainted. Hinton, during that time, was moving house, and Bowles helps him move, and as a thank you, Hinton invites him to stay with him for a while. They lived together for about two weeks, during which Hinton asked Bowles to move out because he was being rude to a female friend of his. He, di- he does move out, but then the two make up, I guess Bowles pulled out his dick or something, and uh, he moves back in with Hinton. Bowles tells police on the day of the murder he had been drinking and smoking pot with a friend named Rick all afternoon while Hinton was at work. And after he comes home, it's 8 p.m., Hinton drives Rick to the train station where Bowles is in the back seat of the car. They keep drinking at the station. Rick gets on the train. He leaves. Then Hinton drives Bowles back to the mobile home. Hinton goes to bed. He's tired. He's been working all day. He's got this low life mooching off of him, completely exhausting him and draining him of all his energy. Bowles, of course, stays up and keeps drinking another half dozen beers. Now, according to Bowles, he just snapped. There's no reason. He just snapped. He went outside. He got a 40-pound boulder. And, well, you know the rest. Like, snapped. Hinton, by all accounts, was such a gentleman to you and so welcoming and and patient with you. Snapped? Like, that. that's not good enough. Like, give us a reason. The detective asked why he killed Hinton, and Bowles says he doesn't know. He had been drinking and smoking pot all night, but he couldn't think of anything specific that had made him angry, which really makes it worse. I mean, at least if he had triggered you somehow, but the poor guy was working all day. He's basically supporting you. He's driving your fucking friend to the train station, even, at 8 o'clock p.m. after, after he's had a long day at work, and now he comes home to his home, He turns in early, he's tired, he wants to go to bed, and you kill him for no reason. Bowles says it was time to move on. So Bowles tells police that he panicked uh, when he killed him, he steals the car, he drives away only to return, and he actually stays in the mobile home with the dead body for two days. He even picks up a homeless woman and brings her home, I'm assuming that they're fucking in the mobile home, while poor Hinton is dead in the next room. Eventually, he does leave the home and he drives to Jacksonville Beach Motel where he checks in and that's where he's found and arrested. So, I mean, Hinton's sister, Belinda, and her husband, William, must have just missed Bowles. Like, they must have just missed him because he he killed him. He stayed there for two days. I mean, he might have even been home when William was knocking at the door 
the day after Belinda's birthday party, right? The lights were on and William's there at the front door and he's knocking. Well, guess who's inside? That's really scary. And not only that, then they waited a couple more days. Then they went back to the mobile home. They, and, But when they broke into the mobile home to check out what's going on because they're worried about Hinton, obviously Bowles was already gone. They must have just missed him. Can you imagine if he had broken in and Bowles was in the mobile home still? What kind of confrontation or, I don't know, what kind of, like what would have happened? Would that have been like a life and death thing? Would that have been like, hopefully, I would imagine that William would just bolt and be like, there's a stranger in the mobile home, call the police. Either way, the police caught him rather quickly. So, okay, back at the police station and during questioning, Bowles confesses to the murder of Hinton, Roberts, and Morris, and it's not long, although way overdue, that they realize he's also responsible for the three other murder investigations. In all, the violence for the murders was way more than necessary to simply murder the victims, and even though he robbed the men, it was obvious that that was not the motive to murder them. I mean, basically, this guy was really charming, and he's good-looking. Um, he didn't have to murder them. He could steal whatever he wanted, and he could have taken the car at any time. He could have taken their wallets at any time. There was no point. So it was obvious that it was not for financial gain, you know. Um, during Bowles' numerous interviews with police, he spoke to many people, including Tom Youngman, who was a homicide and crime scene investigator with the Daytona Beach Police Department. Their conversation went something like this. Youngman, quote, Why did you choose gay men as your victims? Bowles, I blame them for the shit gone wrong in my life. Youngman, but aren't you gay? Bowles, no, they only give me head. I never reciprocate. Youngman, well, that's homosexuality. Bowles, no, it's not. Youngman, then what are you if you're not a homosexual? Bowles, I'm a hustler. We'll talk a little bit more about that conversation because I've got some things to say about it at the end of this story. But let's keep going to the trial because on December 8th, 1994, Bowles is indicted on two counts, one for first-degree murder of Jay Hinton and one of robbery, and he pleads guilty only to the murder. The prosecution is led by Assistant State Attorney Bernardo de la Rionda, who argues that the crimes were motivated by the want for financial gain and by Bowles's Bulls's hatred of the gay community. Delaronda says, quote, each of the murders was brutal. In every case, the victims fought vigorously while suffering from unexplainable pain at the hands of their killer. It was not an instant death. It wasn't like getting somebody shot and then dying from the gunshot. It was a life and death struggle, end quote. Bull's defense team argue that their client suffered from mental instability triggered by the childhood abuse he received at the hands of his stepfathers. Also, on the night in question, his judgment, they say, was impaired through pot and booze, and they counter that the crimes were not committed for financial gain or for sexual reasons. The trial doesn't last long, and finally the jury heads out to deliberate. In the jury's chambers, it's overheard said, quote, Now, just between us squirrel friends. I'm totally kidding. They didn't say that. That's a RuPaul reference, if you didn't get it. Okay. Um, anyway, the jury goes to deliberate. And it does not take them long to come to a verdict. 10 to 2 for the death penalty, and the court agrees. The public defenders immediately filed an appeal with the Supreme Court of Florida with over a half dozen issues on the table. The biggest one was, though, 
the the defense claimed that the prosecution didn't prove that the murder was homosexually motivated or done for financial gain. In other words, they claimed that the state failed to establish any connection between Bull's alleged hatred of homosexual men and Hinton's murder. So that evidence was irrelevant and made the sentencing proceeding unreliable. Homosexually motivated? What a weird way to say something. Homosexually motivated. And who cares what the motivation was? You murdered him. I guess it matters in how they presented the evidence and how... I mean, murder is murder, right? I mean, whether you love gays, you hate gays, you killed them, right? Anyway, so the Supreme Court decides, hey, you're right, defense team. We don't really see any connection between Bowles and the murder and gay hate. So the conviction stays, but will drop the death sentence. I guess what they're saying is murder is better if it's not also a hate crime? Question mark? Then they remand the case to the state circuit for new sentencing. Prosecutions de la Rionda was upset, obviously, at the retrial, but he said, quote, he looks forward to trying them again and getting the death penalty again. During the retrial, Bowles' prior felonies are brought to the table, like his conviction for sexual battery, remember that, robbery, and the first-degree murders of Roberts and Morris. So, basically, they made it a lot worse the second time around. Um, and on May 27th, 1999, the jury takes only an hour and they come back with a unanimous fucking kill the sick bastard. I mean, guilty. And he's sentenced to die in the electric chair. Zap, zap, zap. But what do you think the defense team does? That's right. They appeal. This time they have 12 issues of contention. But on October 11th, 2001, I mean, the years are ticking by here. All of the red tape and the bureaucracy of the courts and that this guy is still alive. Just kill him already. 2001, the Supreme Court of Florida rules in favor of the circuit court. They find no errors and they recommend that they fry the sick fuck. So, Bowles' lawyer files another petition to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it's denied in 2002. So, he's imprisoned at the Union Correctional Institute in Rayford, Florida, where he waits to be put to death. He spends 20 years in a six-by-nine-foot cell. 20 fucking years. I mean, what's the point of having the death penalty if it takes that long to implement it? Honestly, like, okay, and to my point, get this. Get this. Among those who were scheduled to witness the execution was the assistant state attorney, Bernardo de la Rionda, and he's there representing the Hinton family. De la Rionda says, quote, in this case, the victim's sister and the victim's mother are both deceased. And that's part of the tragedy that it had taken so long to get where we are at. So they died before they they see justice. I mean, the guy's incarcerated and, you know, many people would say, well, that is justice. He's, you know, locked away. But they wanted to see him fry and they never got to see that. So the monster that terrorized a community later dubbed the I-95 killer is executed by lethal injection, not the chair, because they took the chair away because they said that that's not nice enough. So we have to be, if we're going to kill them, we've got to be nicer about it. Lethal injection 
is more humane. We'll talk about that later. Um, so he's executed by lethal injection in Florida at 10.58 p.m., August 22nd, 2019, after the U.S. Supreme Court denied his 11th hour petition for a stay, rejecting his attorney's argument that he was too intellectually disabled to be put to... I mean, what does that even mean? Like, okay, you're on death row and your lawyer's like, okay, uh, we're going to try to, you know, put this off. We're going to try to stall this. We'll just say you're too intellectually disabled to die. What? No. You die. You murdered people. You die. You've been convicted. You've been tried. You've been convicted. You're in prison for 20 years. Just kill him already. Okay. None, none of his family comes to visit him before he dies, and no priest comes to pray for him. He eats three... Well, that was his request. He didn't want the priest. I wanted to... <laughs> I wanted to frame it like they asked the priest, and they're like, no, I am not going to come pray for him. But actually, he didn't want the priest there. So anyway, he ate three cheeseburgers, French fries, and bacon as his last meal. Again, like, why are you giving somebody on death row the choice of their last meal? Like, haven't you lost your rights to any sort of freedoms and choices by being a murderer and killing people? You know, did his victims get the same treatment from him? So he gets to have bacon and cheeseburger. I'm getting hungry. French fries. Ooh, that sounds good. Um, okay, in his final words, read to reporters after his death, the 57-year-old inmate apologized, quote, for all the pain and suffering I have caused. He also told his mother he was sorry for his crimes. Obviously, she's like, fuck you. You're a disgusting disgrace to the family because she didn't show up for the... Or maybe she loves him and she didn't want to actually watch him die. Who can say? Maybe we should call her. Quote, having, she, he said, sorry, mom, quote, having to deal with your son being called a monster is terrible. I'm so very sorry. I mean, talk about too little, too late. I never wanted this to be my life. You don't wake up one day and decide to become a serial killer. Mm, I beg to differ. If you remember in a previous podcast, uh, Colin Ireland literally on New Year's Eve decided to become a serial killer. So... That's actually not a real thing, Gary Bowles. You can decide to become a serial killer. Anyway, he dies. Yay! And so ends the story of the gay-for-pay hustler-turned-serial killer, Gary Ray Bowles. Good riddance to you, dickface. Okay. Ooh, I've got some interesting information here about Florida's death penalty and the death penalty in general. So, as you know, Florida is notorious for capital punishment. Love it or hate it, it's big down there and it enjoys a long history. The first inmate to ever be executed in Florida was in the chair and it was 1924. And over the next 40 years, it continued until the early 60s when the constitutionality of capital punishment came under scrutiny. It's then that the Supreme Court of the U.S. decides that the death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment that violates the Eighth Amendment. I got curious, so I googled what the fuck is the Eighth Amendment. So, it goes like this. The Eighth Amendment prohibits the federal government from imposing excessive bail, excessive fines, or cruel and unusual punishments. I mean, it's pretty broad and vague, I have to say. The amendment was adopted on December 15, 1791, so it's been around forever. Um, anyway, so because of that, the death penalty disappears nationwide. 600 prisoners um, 
600 prisoners' lives are spared, including 96 in Florida at the time. But the advocates for the death penalty keep on it, and they propose new statutes that allow for it in some circumstances. So Florida, of course, becomes one of the first to revise it so that they can so that it can be reinstated. Then, after a 15-year suspension in 1976, the bitch is back, and the first uh, execution takes place in Florida in 1979. Florida is only one of 38 states that now have the death penalty, and two women and 54 men have been executed nationally, with about 385 inmates currently on death row, with the large majority of the inmates being Caucasian. So let's talk about a few of the things that I wanted to talk about during the story because I didn't want to distract too much from the story during it. Um, But here we have this guy who goes on the road and becomes a sex worker and he's hustling for cash. Okay, so he's doing what he needs to do to get by. I got it. And there's nothing wrong with sex work. This is honest work. I think it needs to be... Uh, legalized. I think it needs to be because then we can uh, create safe spaces for it to happen. We can have testing, you know, drug testing. We can have um, STD, STI testing. It can be, we can make it a safer environment for everybody if it doesn't have the stigma which i understand a lot of sex work, a lot of the underground sex work that's part of it is that sort of the fact that it's underground that it's shady that it's seedy you know uh, some people i would say particularly the clients probably don't want it out in the open because they don't want to shine a light on them participating in something like sex work as a client But as a sex worker, I would imagine for them it would be a lot safer if there were regulations, if it was legal, if, you know, we were able to provide safe spaces for it to happen, Um, you know, people would be tested, there would be the the proper uh, precautions could be taken. Uh, You know, it's just too vulnerable of a community that it needs to be looked after. Uh, We need to look after each other. Sex workers are workers. They are human and they deserve the rights and privileges just like everyone else. Um, Okay, that's my soapbox. But so in this case, this guy, for example, is doing sex work. Okay, great. That's fine. But the thing, so the interesting angle to this is for a lot of people is he's not gay is what he says. So you know, in the in gay circles, we all know the term gay for pay. So this guy obviously falls under the that umbrella term of gay for pay. So he says he's not gay. He dates women. He likes women. He's just using men to make money. Okay, fine. Call yourself whatever you want. Labels suck anyway. They're completely constricting. They're so restrictive. I mean, talk about putting people in boxes. If there's one thing I hate, it's boxes and labels because not one word could ever describe, you know, that part of you or any part of you, for example. So you can't say, oh, I'm straight. Oh, I'm gay. Oh, I'm bi. I mean, these are such umbrella, huge umbrella terms, um, you know, to use for people. So I've been with women before. Does that make me bi? I don't consider myself bi. I consider myself gay. So, you know, what do you consider yourself? What makes somebody gay or bi or straight? You know, 
Those are all the questions. That's why the spectrum is so beautiful. It's all from here, way over here, to way over here, and it's just this huge, long, blending spectrum of people that fall, it, whatever you're talking about, whatever you know, category you're talking about, they everybody falls somewhere on the spectrum from left to right, anywhere in between, and there's a gazillion different points where people can fall on the spectrum. Clearly, this is somebody who considers himself straight, which is fine. He can, but he falls somewhere on the spectrum where he's comfortable enough where he allows another man to give him head. Great. Okay. So you're on the spectrum, sir. You can't say that you're straight if somebody is sucking your dick. I'm not saying you're gay, but I'm saying somewhere you're falling on the spectrum because $10, $20, that's not going to be enough for a lot of quote unquote straight men to allow somebody to blow them. I mean, you know, it's just not going to be enough. Hey, look, everyone has their price. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you fall on the spectrum, sir. So it's such an interesting conversation to have. And I and I just wish, I mean, I understand labels because we need labels to sort of help us categorize things. And I, I do love categorizing. I mean, putting, I like grouping. I guess I, I like grouping just for, for simplicity's sake. So I understand why we do it as humans. But yeah, labels and boxes just are the worst. And we just need to stop using them as much. We need to invent a better way. Hmm. Okay, I'll get on that. After this podcast, I'm going to sit down and invent a better way for us to categorize each other. That's not going to be so limiting. Okay, thanks. Um, oh, let's talk about the death penalty. What? This is, I know, now, I know that we've talked about this in a, in a previous podcast about the death penalty. Very polarizing discussion, I know. Um, you know, playing God, you know, who are we to decide um, I'm going to be honest, for me, personally, I like the eye for an eye. Um, I, you know, I, I like, I like the, I like the idea of an eye for an eye. I do. I just do. I mean, that, to me, that makes sense. If you, whatever level of something that you do to somebody else that's really harming them, that's what you're going to get back to you. And I'm not going to wait for karma to come get you. I'm not going to wait for the universe to decide now is your time and this is how the universe is going to repay you. I think the justice system should be an eye for an eye. And listen, if you go and you take people's lives, we take yours. I don't I don't understand the point of keeping somebody in a cage for their entire lives and the taxpayers paying for that because they're not going to be rehabilitated. They're not going to be functioning members of society. And the longer, P.S., that they're in prison, the worse they get. Um, I can hear people already thinking and, like, typing responses. Please, I would love to hear your um, thoughts about the death penalty and, and the pros and cons. Listen, I'm not an expert. This is just coming from, you know, observations of uh, just a normal guy who does a podcast and knows what he knows just from living life and reading articles. But if you have, you know, a more informed uh, opinion, I would love to hear for, uh, I would love to hear it because I am very open. I'm not a closed person when it comes to things like this. So if if we can have a discussion about, you know, why? 
why keep them around or why not keep them around? You know, I'm very, I'm all about like, that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, for me, from my perspective and from what I see, I just get rid of them. Like they're just a useless piece of society that is just dragging us down and we're paying for the housing for them. We're feeding them. Why? Like just, they're not going to be a functioning member of society ever again. So I don't know, get rid of them, you know? And I get it, you know, maybe the electric chair was too dramatic and it was like not nice. But then again, I mean, these guys, when they were killing their victims, you know, did they give them any courtesies? Did they say, hey, what do you, would you like your last meal to be? What would you like your last statement to be? Oh, hold on. Let me get a priest for you. Like, why should they get all those privileges also? Mm, not really into it. I'm not feeling that for Gary, for Gary Ray Bowles or people of that ilk. So... Anyway, that's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening, and I will see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com, and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did, because it helps me create content you like, and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?